Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Julian Emanuel's with us, Chief Equity and Quantitative Strategist at Evercore ISI. Julian, you call this the gray zone. What on earth is the gray zone? The gray zone is, look, we had a reasonably epic bear market from January to June uh, that was not only the epitome of don't fight the Fed, but the markets took the hawkish narrative and ran with it in an unprecedented way, causing, you know, if you look at the stock bond quadrant, uh, you know, the biggest losses in the combined 60-40 portfolio that we've seen in years. And then it all turned uh, in uh, June and into a few weeks ago. Uh, And now we're at a point where uh, do we go back to the don't fight the Fed mantra uh, or do we think about it and we think about the unfolding, you know, perhaps the Fed easing off, which is not at all in the script right now, right. even though people are well, discounting that, that next that, year. This is important. To that point, in the last 22 hours, we've heard here David Rosenberg and Luke Tilly of Wilmington Trust both scream the disinflation story, Edward Hyman screams. Ed Hyman says we're going from 8-ish, 9-ish, and we're going down not to 2, but we're going to 4%. What does your world do if we get an Ed Hyman disinflation? Stocks do well. Stocks absolutely oh, come on. do what? John, no, help they, me no, here. They, do they do double digit well? Like, do they roar? N- not in this environment, not yet, because the likelihood is that if that happens, Ed's view of 1% GDP is probably where we are in 2023. And that's still a constrained environment. But I want to make a point here. Please. Okay. You've got three Fed speakers today. Okay. And if you think about it, going back to the first hike in March, Every time there was an extreme sort of market response to anything that Powell said, both either hawkish or dovish, the Fed speakers come out and have moderated the tone. It's going to be very informative what they say. Can we get him on every day or like every (laughs) other day? I mean, just to lighten it up. (laughs) Your people can talk to his people. So far, Julian, to your point, the other Fed officials have absolutely doubled down. They have not watered down Jay Powell's message at all. They've gone quite the other way. How does that inform your assertion, which is rather dramatic, that the growth-led rally is over? You're basically uh, repudiating this idea that big tech can rally in the face of perhaps more economic weakness, even with a Fed that is determined to hike rates. Well, and again, it's surprising to the extent in the last couple of days how much the other Fed officials have doubled down. But what it does is it just when you when you look at yields, 
You know they're going up uh, on the short end rates, but also when you think about the fact that tomorrow we're going to start $95 billion a month in QT, it's hard not to make the case that yields on the long end are going up as well. And again, as we've seen in this positively correlated stock bond world, that's a massive headwind for stocks, particularly for growth stocks. What kind of downside are you seeing, Julian? I would say the key here is does the consumer hold in in September? If you think about it, one of the anomalies of this year is that consumer sentiment has been absolutely abysmal the entire year and spending has been fine. Obviously, that's one of the strangenesses about a new inflationary environment. But if you think about it, you know, could you get into this uh, idea, we're back to the office, we're back to school, September is, is challenged. That is the kind of environment, if the consumer holds in, we could be okay. We, you know, but if not, there's a potential retest of the lows in store. Well, this is the bigger question, Julian. It's not about whether inflation comes down to 4%. It's what price you're willing to pay to get inflation down to 4%. Where's unemployment? when inflation comes down to 4%. What's happened to GDP when inflation comes down to 4%? Julian, it's not that easy, is it, just to say we come down to 4%, that's good for stocks? No, n not at all. And, and look, if we've learned anything this year, or I'd argue the last two and a half years, is that the tail outcomes, you know, when people talk about black swans, they happen a heck of a lot more frequently than we would have ever ex uh, imagined. And that's really what you've seen to a large extent this year. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of different potential outcomes as we head into the fall. We're starting to trying to stay super, super open-minded about this, Julian. Can you help us do that? The short and shallow consensus around a recession in America. How are you and the team thinking about maybe the tail risks here? So, so we continue to think that you're not likely to have a recession, but if Ed's view of 1% GDP uh, next year is, is correct, and, and we see asymmetrical, uh, pardon me, symmetrical risk around that number, it's still going to feel for asset markets from time to time as if there's a recession. That argues for higher volatility. And then again, you know, Ed said it a couple of days ago, it argues for humility in forecast. Has Ed sent out the memo, everyone get back to the office? Did he do a <laughs> well, There's the real question. Did he do a Solomon? Has he uh, sent out the memo? You know, day after Labor Day, we're, 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 we're guns blazing. Get back in. The ties are back, I've noticed as well, Tom. Did you notice that? I've yeah. got a message. When Jan Hasius was with us from Goldman, I noticed yeah. the tie was back, yeah. but only after the interview. When was the tie ever out? I well, the tie was, yeah. the tie was out during the pandemic. pandemic. <laughs> Jan took it off. The bow tie's gone, Tom. The tie's gone. No, you know. Julian, thank you. It's good to see you in I person. I wore a tie thank last you. night to the Open. Christian Nolding joins us, Global Chief Investment Officer at Deutsche Bank Private Bank. Christian, we have taken out the June highs on a two-year yield, and the question a lot of people are asking is whether this equity market has to test the June lows. Your thoughts? Well, from, from our point of view, if you think from a growth perspective, we do think there is a, at least mild recession coming in the U.S., and there's also recession unavoidable for us in the Eurozone. And from that perspective, I wouldn't be surprised if equity markets go down a bit further from here. And we have been calling, um, saying the June, June dry uptick is, is probably not, is a bear market rally, is probably not where we end. We have been arguing for buy the next dip, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see, and if you look at the, the markets, it's another three, four, five, six percent 
percent, depending on the market's downside. I wouldn't rule out that we get there from, from our point of view. Christian, what do you do with bonds? The chart that I put up earlier of price flat yield, I guess, up a little bit. Global bonds on an aggregate basis are back 11 years. What do you do with that institutionally? Well, from our point of view, it has been right to be short duration, and we kept it. So from that perspective, at least uh, you, you can avoid to be super long duration, as, as many investors sometimes have to be. I think that's number one. And then you really need to look at quality from our point of view. So um, you had discussed before, if there's a recession, what does it mean to credit spreads? I think we also need to look a little bit ahead, as we don't expect, at least in the U.S., a sustained long recession, maybe it's two quarters, three quarters. I think if spreads are widening, there is an opportunity. If you look into investment grade, I would be a bit more careful on the on the high yield side from our point of view. We don't think these levels, which seem attractive, uh, but uh, from our point of view, is not where we want to go in right now. Christian, is, is Europe in a toxic place to invest in right now based on the energy backdrop and some of the volatility there? Or are you still seeing perhaps some opportunities even ahead of the U.S.? Well, I wouldn't call it toxic place, to be very honest, but of course, uh, it, it's tough to be very optimistic about you at this point in time, let's call it like this. I think there are opportunities. If you think the ECB is, is doing quite a lot, as we do, we can imagine over the next 12 months, the ECB is moving from zero now to two, which is quite something, I would say. There is, I think, opportunities in European financials which could profit from that. But for the overall market, it depends really on the energy crisis and how the winter plays out to be. Uh, and from that perspective, uh, it, it's not going to be easy for Europe the next months, I think. Christian, did you just say that you're investing in European banks? Yeah, I think European financials have upside because, uh, as I said, if the ECB is moving, they can profit from, from a higher interest rate level. Uh, and from that perspective, now we are at zero. And I would expect the ECB not to look so much at growth because their target is really price stability and to move up uh, in increasing rates. And from that perspective, I think that would be positive for them, yes. And Christian, they're hiking into a recession. What's more important here? That's, the rate hikes or the economic true. backdrop? Yeah, but I think, yeah, recession, yes. But also here in Europe, I think it's not a recession, which is a deep recession, which, which takes quarters and quarters. Uh, from that perspective, yes, there is some implication. And you have not seen a massive movement upwards, although the market is pricing some of the ECB hikes, not all. I think we, the ECB is doing more. And from that perspective, I think there could be some positives uh, being overgrossed, looking at rate hikes from our point of view. Well, that's Indeed. a trade for the brave. Christian, thank you, sir. Christian Nolan there of Deutsche Bank Private Bank. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. 
Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Deborah Cunningham wakes us up for September. Global liquidity markets uh, officer at Federated Hermes. We're thrilled she could join us this morning. What do CFOs do in September? I get the idea, equities, everybody comes back, they recalibrate, blah, blah, blah. What do CFOs do about the issuance of uh, uh, bills, notes, and bonds come September? Well, I think they look at what the plans are for the rest of the year, where they're going into the next year and decide on short term, long term, how much, um, you know, in, in what sector right. of the market they're issuing. Do they so I think we'll, we'll Does, see debt come, come into the marketplace. I, I agree. Robert Schiffman has a stunning essay out on Amazon at Bloomberg Intelligence this morning of the financing that they could do for a $100 billion possible transaction just to get the firepower. In your world, is a lot of debt going to be issued just to get the firepower ready? You know, I think there have been companies that have um, have have already termed out some debt, taking advantage of what they think are the shortest or the lowest rates that are going to be, um, you know, available to them for a while as inflation continues to be an issue. Um, but I don't think it's everyone. I think you still got, you know, asset-backed issuers. I think you have corporates. I think you have financials that are all looking still for additional debt financing in the short-term sector, as well as maybe the you know, short to intermediate uh, area of the bond curve over the next, um, over the rest of this year and into 2023. Deborah, you've got a front row seat into one of the biggest questions in markets coming up, particularly starting this week with the acceleration of the runoff in the balance sheet and what that will do with respect to the removal of liquidity in markets, how much that will inject volatility uh, into a lot of the banking sphere in particular. What's your view in terms of what you're seeing on the ground with liquidity exiting certain aspects? of the market that really have been fueling some of the frothier areas? Well, certainly, you know, it's been going on since June. Now it's going to double, you know, starting next month, starting starting tomorrow. Um, and it's been masked by other issues in the economy. So, you know, what we have seen so far from a roll-off of Treasury and mortgage-backed securities has already been overshadowed by the increasing rate environment that we've experienced and the sell-off in those securities um, in response to that. Uh, you know, the expectation would be as they double it, you're looking at something that has an impact of probably another 25 or 50 basis point like tightening by um, by the FOMC. And as such, you know, wh where 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 are the buyers? Who are the buyers? Um, we have from at least a Treasury perspective, however, been in, you know, sort of a supply demand imbalance where there hasn't been enough in supply in the marketplace. So it's really going to be welcomed, I think, to a, some degree for, you know, the most highest quality Treasury securities in the marketplace. From an MBS standpoint, there may be a little bit more resistance, but it's smaller volume there as well. Deborah, got to leave it there. Thank you. Deborah Cunningham of Federated Hermes. <laughs> 
I think it's coming back. And obviously a lot of this is just gonna have to do with the macro environment. You know, if we see markets crash again, we're gonna see crypto crash along with it. If we see a market recovery, we're gonna see a crypto recovery along with it. But I think this is, you know, it's flushed out a lot of the things that needed to be flushed out from the crypto space anyway. It wasn't bad, bad bath and beyond, but to go from 24 billion to 8 billion net worth, net worth makes it difficult 2024. Sam Bankman Freed with David Rubenstein. This is an extremely important conversation for all wired up to crypto like me and uh, Lisa. Mr. Rubenstein joins us this morning. Look for that at 9 p.m. tonight. Um, this guy's controversial to say the least. What is his cred? What is the the thing that he has that makes people in crypto listen to him? Well, he's very smart and he's made a lot of money. Um, when you make a lot of money, he lost a lot of money too, David. But at the age of thirty, he was worth twenty two billion dollars. He became the youngest person to sign the giving pledge, and he's committed to giving away all his money. He basically spends nothing on himself. He lives in the Bahamas. Basically has no clothes of any consequence. He wears shorts and T-shirts and tennis shoes all the time. He lives in a dorm with eight friends or so. He only cares about certain public issues and public policy, but he's very unusual. How does he control or what does he believe the price of Bitcoin will do? How does it discover a bid at whatever level? Well, I didn't ask him that because he basically, he operates FTX, which is an exchange. So it gives everybody the opportunity to buy or sell Bitcoin or other uh, cryptocurrencies. He doesn't know what the right price should be. He recently bailed out a lot of uh, yes. companies that had troubles. He might lose money on all that, but he feels it was good for the industry. So why is this industry important from a social benefit kind of way if he is, David, incredibly idealistic and looking for the betterment of a, a social order? Well, his view is that uh, people who have money should give away that money or do things for good social purposes, and that's what he's always believed in. He now has a fair amount of money, and he's giving away a good deal of money. He's also involved in politics, and he gives a lot of money to politicians. He thinks it's good to get good public servants in government, and so he's trying to back the ones he thinks are good. He has an unusual lifestyle in that he's really not uh, buying any of the accoutrements of wealth that you normally get when you have a you know, multi-billion dollar fortune. I have to pivot a little bit because, David Rubenstein, I caught uh, an article that was written about you a couple of days ago about your potential bid for the Nationals, possibly the Orioles, should they come up uh, for uh, offer. Ooh, is this, is this a moment baseball. of passion or is this something that's actually an investment at a time when a lot of people are looking for alternative assets? Well, um, you know, I, I realized when I was young, I wasn't going to be a professional baseball player. I thought I was a great star at six or seven, but when I got to eight or nine, I realized I probably wasn't going to make the major leagues. So I figured if I ever get to the major leagues, I'd probably have to do it as an investor or an owner. So I have, I am from Baltimore. Uh, I have looked at uh, whether buying a baseball team makes some sense, but it's too early to say what's going to happen now. I, I, Lisa, that was a very dangerous question. Why is it know. dangerous? David, do you think Rubenstein's it was a dangerous question? Ever going to come back again? Um, to the point of baseball and sports, the stereotype of big hitters is they can buy any sports team and it never goes down. It just always goes up. Why is that? It's hard to lose money on a sports team generally. When you own them, the NFL teams, they make money as hand over fist. Um, baseball, basketball, um, other mm -hmm. teams, they make money when you tend to sell the team. Um, and so people rarely lose money selling a team. Uh, in the end, if you, right. you, you can support the team without uh, <clears throat> current income from the team, you can 
do quite well just holding it for quite some time. But if you look at most people who've made money in baseball, it's by selling the team, right. not operating it daily. On the other hand, some teams are very profitable on cash flow basis. Where are you and Carlisle with the investments over the years on public investment in stadium? Now, you don't need to do that in Baltimore because Camden right. Yards is truly one of our jewels. But But – should public funds be spent? I'm trying to think of the city right now where this is a raging debate. Should we buy new baseball stadiums? Well, uh, every every government official presumably is elected by people, mm -hmm. and uh, they make the decisions that hopefully uh, reflect what their population right. wants. So populations tend to want these things. People like yeah. the sports teams. Uh, you, you have such an enduring place in philanthropy. If Mr. Sam Bankman-Fried enjoys going from $22 billion down to eight billion, and let's say Bitcoin cracks and goes down to whatever twelve thousand, whatever. Does he change? I don't think he changes a lot. He's remember he's not spending this on his personal kind of uh, yeah. um, needs. He's not buying big right. homes or planes or things like that. Yeah. And I think whether he's worth eight billion, twenty-two billion, or <clears throat> one billion, I don't think he's going to change very much. He's very young. Yeah. He's only thirty years old. I'd like you to come back and talk to me for one hour about the National Archives, which is being dragged through the mud right now. I know this is a third rail for you. And if you find the time and the energy, I would love to do a half hour nonstop on what is Anytime. in your heart and soul. The National Archives is a great institution in, in Washington. It has all of the records of uh, our federal government, and it's been around from the 1920s. Um, they, they don't have a current head because uh, uh, David Ferriero resigned, retired, but there'll be somebody who is uh, likely to be confirmed soon. The first woman to be the chief archivist of the United States. You talked right around me there. What if the right-wing part of America goes after your national archives with your philanthropy on Magna Carta and the rest? Well, there are people in Congress who I think will prevent that from happening. The system others. will I, prevent it. Yeah. I hope so. Right. David, thank you so much. Thank David you. Rubenstein, we know tonight with FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried and as Lisa Bramwitz said to me in my ear, Orioles three games behind in the wild card race uh, as well. Thank you for that information, <laughs> He's going to keep throwing me under the bus, right, Yes, Tom? thank you. Basically <laughs> just trying to make me look like I'm See just, you See if the know, badge works to. tomorrow. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.